This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction on ABC Radio National and as podcast, Natasha Mitchell with you. And joining us over the next two weeks is ABC environment reporter Nick Kilvert, my colleague who specialises in all things environment. G'day, Nick. G'day, Natasha. It's great to have you on the show this week. Thanks for having me. Anything less than your best is too much to pay. Anything later than now is too little, too late. Nothing will change without you. Hey, all eyes are on Scotland this week as world leaders and negotiators meet in Glasgow at the UN Climate Change Conference. COP26, as they call it, it's big. Its mission is bigger than big. If we think about what US envoy John Kerry uh, has said, he's described this conference as the last best opportunity to get real on the climate. Nick, how high are the stakes at this particular meeting? How would you describe them? The stakes are huge. This is really one of the last chances to get some really, really strong targets for 2030, which then sets our sort of trajectory heading into 2050. And especially for some of our neighbours here here in, in the Pacific, they're really kind of seeing it as the last chance to keep that all crucial 1.5 degree of warming in arm's reach. I don't need to remind you the reality of vulnerable communities. If you're here today, you know what climate change is doing to us. You don't need my pain or my tears to know that we're in a crisis. The real question is whether you have the political will to do the right thing to wield the right words and to follow it up with long overdue action. Yes, and it's interesting, you've, you've said 2030, you've said 2050, and I think people get quite confused about the kind of tangle of numbers that get thrown about. And what we wanted to really do is unpack what net zero by 2050 will look and feel like. What does it mean to say net zero by 2050? So if you're going to add up all the greenhouse gas emissions we put out into the atmosphere and take away those we managed to pull back out of the atmosphere, what would it mean to say net zero emissions by 2050. And is that enough? You know, the the devil is in the detail. The Australian government has said we can get there by focusing on technology, not taxes, uh, not shutting down greenhouse gas emitting coal and gas fired industry. So we want to look at that next program. But this week is a bit of a beginner's guide to net zero by 2050. Earth system scientist Will Steffen is with us. He's Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University and a a climate counsellor with the Climate Institute. He was previously the Climate Commissioner with the Australian Government's Climate Commission. And we've got Ewan Ritchie with us, Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at uh, Deakin University. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. Is reaching net zero by 2050 the right way of thinking about the challenge ahead? For example, to what extent does it matter how fast we reach net zero by 2050? What if we left it all to the last five years, the last 10 years? Yeah, you've, you've put your finger on the critical issue. If we dawdle around for another 15 years or so and then decide to get emissions down rapidly, that has a very, very big difference compared to getting emissions down rapidly by 2030 and then having a more difficult tail of emissions to get out of the way over the next decade or two. It's the cumulative emissions that one puts into the atmosphere that determines the temperature rise and therefore the associated impacts and risks of climate change. So that's why 2030 is so important. It's far more important than 2050. 
And already sitting here at 2020 or 2021, I should say, the latest IPCC report says uh, we are going to go over 1.5. And the only way we'll actually get temperature rise back to it is by drawing down carbon in the second half of the century. That already is telling us that we are in a very urgent situation. And what we do between now and 2030 is really going to be the deciding factor. And so we're talking about 1.5 and 2 degrees. Just for people who may not be entirely across it. Those numbers haven't just kind of been plucked from thin air, right? There's there's good science behind why we talk about 1.5 and 2 as our, our sort of upper limits that we should be aiming for. That's correct. When you look at the IPCC special report on 1.5, that made it clear. And they, they compared the impacts of 1.5 and 2 degree temperature rises, and they are significantly different. The situation is much worse for the 2 degree temperature rise. To give you an example, the Great Barrier Reef will be hammered at 1.5, but there may be bits of it that remain at two degrees, it's history. And you can look at the rate of sea level rise that goes up significantly with the two degrees temperature rise, which means more coastal erosion, more coastal flooding. Extreme heat is worse, much worse at two degrees. We could see uh, 50 degrees Celsius in our major cities reasonably often during summertime, and the list could go on. But the point is, it's not just a half a degree, which doesn't sound like very much. It's a very, very big change in the risks and impacts at two degrees compared to 1.5. Nika, a warming planet is home to so much more than us. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it's easy for us to think about how this is going to affect us, but we, of course, are part of a much bigger natural world and, and that's all really at stake. Let's bring in Ewan Ritchie, Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at Deakin University. Hey, Ewan. Hey, Natasha. Yeah, I think what's really important to recognise here is that we actually have two crises that are happening concurrently, and that is, of course, the climate crisis. And the extinction crisis, which is you know, the devastation that we're seeing around the world in terms of species declining and, and becoming extinct, climate is compounding you know, this issue for the environment. And of course, when species themselves go extinct, that can also compound ironically and devastatingly the climate issue. So when we're talking about the death of forests, as an example, that of course means less ability to capture carbon. So there's so many profound ways that this climate crisis will affect, you know, the environment um, itself. And of course, we are a part of that. We are already seeing devastating impacts. And of course, we all remember, you know, the, the horrible scenes of the 2019-20 bushfires that occurred in Australia, which have been absolutely linked to increased temperatures and prolonged periods of drought and so forth, which are symptoms of a warming world. Ewan, we're talking here sort of about future projections and and 1.5 versus 2 degrees and and the implications of that are, you've already sort of touched on it, but climate change is having a real effect right now, an observable effect on animals, plants, ecosystems. Look, absolutely. And I'll tell a personal story. So when I was actually studying at university in the mid-90s in Townsville in North Queensland, I remember being told actually by Professor Terry Hughes, a global expert on coral and Professor Stephen Williams was working in the wet tropics looking at rainforest species about warnings of the future, about that if climate change wasn't actually addressed, we would see extinctions, we would see species in the case of the wet tropics moving up mountain ranges to escape the heat. And we're already seeing that, of course. So we've seen extensive bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef and the death of some of those sections of reef that have now turned from coral to more sort of algal areas with completely different fish communities. 
we now no longer see two species of possum um, below 600 metres in elevation, so the lemuroid ringtail possum and the herbert ringtail possum. Steve Wynn's predicted that they would be affected by climate change. They have. They've moved up the mountain, as have many bird species. And are they in danger of ru- actually running out of room, where they, how high they can go? Absolutely. So you can think of a mountain as an island. At the bottom, it's relatively warm. At the top, it's relatively cool, you know, in terms of that elevation. But, of course, if you're an animal that has a particular temperature range that it likes and prefers, you have to keep moving up the mountain and if you're something like a frog and there's many many tiny frog species that live on these mountaintops as well in north queensland eventually you run in a mountain and there's nowhere to go so you know birds may have the option of flying somewhere else although again if they if they fly and there's nowhere else suitable nearby they also will perish and so absolutely we have a whole range of plant and animal and other species trapped on these mountains and they're being basically sort of pushed towards extinction because of climate change and this is where the 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 point five difference between this 1.5 degrees of global warming and two degrees of global warming really comes alive for me because it, it, it 0.5 of a degree makes a remarkable difference when you look at the real world and when you look at actual plant and animal species. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, as an example of that, there was a study in Puerto Rico that looked at an insect population in rainforests where they visited them um, 35 years after they'd been studying them. And they, they saw a 98% collapse of insects in the lower parts of the rainforest and up in the canopy at that 80%. And sort of in line with that, they also saw declines in the amphibian and bird communities, which, of course, in many cases are feeding on those insects. And so even changes of half a degree or one degree can make a huge negative effect on plant and animal communities, which can then, of course, flow on to affect ecosystems. We've recently had work that's shown across Australia from the tropics right down to Antarctica, in fact, that 19 ecosystems are showing signs of collapse. And one of the primary drivers of that, of course, is climate change. So, Ewan, when we think of extinctions, we think about, you know, one animal going extinct. And of course, that's sad because we won't see that animal again. But there are much bigger, you know, consequences, ripple effects, aren't they? Because especially if you're talking about, say, pollinators, you've got these whole ecosystems with a whole lot of interplay between all species. Is it fair to say that some extinctions can kind of trigger ecological collapse or reordering or? Absolutely. So we often refer to what's called extinction cascades. So if you have species that are highly dependent on each other or affect each other, you know, if one species disappears and another one is likely to follow um, shortly after. And, and an example of that, of course, again, is from a few years ago, we had a couple of days in Cairns that were over 40 degrees, which for Cairns is highly unusual. And 23,000 spectacled flying foxes, roughly a third of the Australian population died in those couple of days because of that extreme heat event. Now, that's tragic for those flying foxes themselves, which are a listed, you know, endangered species now as well. But they are pollinators for forests. So if you lose those flying foxes, you lose that pollination process. And of course, that flows on to affect the forest and if everything else is affected you know, by the forest. So I often use the analogy that species are a bit like a car engine. You know, Each little component has its role. And if you start tinkering and start taking components out or components break down, it's very likely the engine will stop working. And that's essentially the ecosystem. So we, we need to be absolutely conserving species and, and addressing climate change is clearly a fundamental part of that. And so we're going to see a lot more of these extreme weather events and therefore, you know, these mass die-off events as we approach 1.5 and and 2. Absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing them all, you know, all over Australia and around the world. And I'm sure Will, you know, is very well aware of this, that these events were predicted, you know, extreme droughts, extreme rainfall events as well that can be equally devastating, you know, floods. 
they're all affecting um, biodiversity rating. We've had fish kills, you know, so the list is, is really rapidly growing. And sadly, you know, the predictions that have been sort of given by scientists for decades now are playing out in real time. So we shouldn't be talking about 2050 as this sort of event in the future that we need to address. We need to address things now and we need to go as hard as possible now to avoid the worst of it. The six years since the Paris Climate Agreement have been the six hottest years on record. Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. And it's time to say enough. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. On Science Fiction on ABC Radio National this week, Natasha Mitchell joined by ABC Environment reporter Nick Kilvert and guests climate scientist Will Steffen and ecologist Ewan Ritchie. We're unpacking what getting to net zero emissions by 2050 would actually look and feel like here on planet Earth, this beautiful place we call home. Will Steffen, I wonder how you're hearing the story that Ewan Ritchie is painting telling. That's a very frightening story. And and Ewan made a very good point that this is not unexpected. We refer back to the 2019-2020 bushfires as a, a horrific event, which the fingerprints of climate change are all over. But in fact, that was predicted 30 years ago. Tom Beer, a CSIRO scientist back in the late 1980s, published a study saying, if we continue on the same track, which we have done since the late 1980s, we would see extreme fire danger weather by around 2020. He was spot on. This is exactly what has happened. Just recently, the Australian Academy of Sciences has published a report on Australia in a three-degree world, uh, which is a really bad outcome, but we could get there uh, if we don't get emissions down rapidly by 2030 and follow that up with continuing emission reductions. And it's a pretty horrific story. The continent would basically be unrecognisable compared to the continent that uh, many of us have grown up in. It will be an entirely different place. There's recently been a UN report that has essentially said that even with the upgraded targets that countries are taking to Glasgow, we're on track for 2.7 degrees of warming this century alone. Do you, in light of Glasgow and with time running out, before 2030, do you still have confidence that our political leaders can actually solve this problem? No, I actually don't have much confidence that they can. Certainly reports coming out of Glasgow is that nations are making more vigorous commitments. Of course, it's easy to make commitments, but that has to be followed up by plans, by policies, by actions and so on to make sure it happens. And again, I just keep uh, iterating, urgency is the name of the game. Commitments by 2050 don't matter much at all. It's the commitment by 2030, as Ewan said, if we don't get on top of this, the natural world isn't going to wait for us. It's going to suffer the impacts of our inaction. So really, coming out of Glasgow, we have to assess what are the pledges by 2030, but more importantly, what are the changes in policies that are going to deliver on those pledges? And there could be a big gap between what is pledged and what is actually going to happen. So thinking about what is going to happen and and what's deliverable, the federal government has put technology right at the centre of its roadmap that it released this week. 
So rather than shutting down coal-fired industries, instead it, it mentions priorities of clean hydrogen, ultra-low-cost solar, energy storage, low-emission steel and aluminium, carbon capture and storage, which we're going to look at in the next program. Does that give you hope? Are you optimistic or sceptical of technology as a tool to get us there? I'm very sceptical if it's only technology that's going to get us there. You need policies, you need incentives, you need research. And you need legislative targets that's going to get you to where we need to go. The basic physics is there. You're not going to cheat the laws of physics. So you've got to meet the criteria that are set down by by what the physical system, how it operates. Technology is a part of that, but it has to be driven and guided by policies that force much more rapid changes in technologies. And in fact, get certain technologies, i.e. the fossil fuel technologies, out of our system ASAP. Now, it's not just scientists who are saying that. It's interesting that the International Energy Agency, the peak body uh, for the global energy sector, has made it clear that there is no room whatsoever for any new fossil fuel developments, coal, oil, and gas. So the IEA is saying that what the Australian government is putting forward is absolutely inadequate and needs to be changed if we are to do our our bit in getting climate change under control. But technology is going to be a vital part of the story, isn't it? It has to be part of the story, but it can't be the major player. It has to be policies, has to be changes in lifestyles as well. We have to learn how to live differently and so on, consume not nearly as much as we're consuming today and so on. I think Ewan made a really good point. We have multiple crises. Climate change is one of them. Biosphere degradation is a huge one. Growing inequalities in social systems is a huge issue. The rising gap between rich and poor, they're all driven by the same system. So we need to think not just technology, but fundamental system change. Yeah, look, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And I think the important point to bear in mind is that we actually have an opportunity here. So as bad as things are, you know, we've had the devastation of COVID and bushfires and so forth in Australia and how that's devastated the economy. If we were to reinvest our money into, you know, more clean technologies, and of course, we actually have a lot of these technologies already, you know, in terms of solar power and wind power and so forth. If we were to imagine a world that was quite different to how we're operating now, there's huge economic benefits that come from that. There's social, cultural and environmental benefits that come from that too. So we really should be seizing that opportunity rather than trying to basically sort of continue with more or less the same and try and find a techno fix to that. You know, we just simply cannot continue with this obsession with the fossil fuel industry. We actually have a great opportunity in front of us to imagine and realise a really different world that, again, we'll still have all these economic, cultural, social, environmental benefits. So we should be taking that opportunity. Have we kind of, in getting our emissions down at the moment, have we been sort of picking off the, the lower hanging fruit? I mean, where, where are the hardest sectors, the hardest industries to, to be getting emissions down? Yeah, well, it makes sense actually to pick the low hanging fruit first and get moving on that, allowing time to, for further research uh, and developments to deal with the hardest sectors. The low hanging fruit obviously is electricity. We know how to get carbon out of that fast and with great economic and social benefits, that is renewables wind and solar with batteries and pumped hydro. We know that. And it's much, much cheaper now than fossil fuels for sure. And that gives us time. We can get emissions down between 30 and 40% just by decarbonizing electricity. Transport, we're moving on that now. Electric vehicles, electric buses, electrified rail are all coming on board. More active transport in cities, cycling and walking and so on. The harder ones, of course, are built infrastructure, 
and some of the industrial processes. But even there, there's some really promising developments. And for example, when you look at, at steel production, there are now ways that we can start to make steel not having to use fossil fuels. Are we talking about hydrogen then, green hydrogen? Yes, talking about hydrogen. But I want to say green hydrogen, not clean hydrogen. There's some real, I think, devious use of the English language there. We want to talk about green hydrogen, that is hydrogen produced by renewable energy, not hydrogen produced by gas or coal. And we can do that now. It's just an electrolysis reaction. Most chemists know uh, that's been around for a long time, know how to do that. And with the, the, the really rapid drop in the cost of renewables, it's making green hydrogen far more feasible. And of course, that then can be a fuel that can be transported and used in, in transport, used in steel production, used in other industrial processes. So a lot of the harder to, to deal with sectors in our economy are now, even compared to five years ago, looking much more promising in terms of uh, getting carbon out of those sectors of the economy. I fully agree with you in that there are enormous opportunities here. Uh, but we've got to move quickly and decisively to grab those opportunities before it's too late. Climate change is very much predicted to, I don't know if punish is the right word, but people who are economically disadvantaged are expected to sort of suffer the most, aren't they? Is, is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say simply because they're less resilient, they have less resources at their disposal to help cope with the situation, to adapt and so on. So the growing inequalities around the world are actually an important part of the whole story, as well as the physical climate change and the degradation of the biosphere. And they exacerbate one another, just as you say, it's going to be the poor people within societies and the poorer countries, they're going to suffer the most from climate change. I've been interested in the evolution of the former head of the Tyndall Centre in the UK, Mike Hume's take on things. You know, he's a climate scientist who then started to think that science doesn't necessarily have a role now. The science is clear. He's now appealing to civil society, to uh, religious groups, to all the other layers of society to really dive in now and enable the sort of social spiritual, cultural change that will need to happen if leaders are to hear what's coming out of this UN climate change conference and act accordingly. And I wonder, as, as, as scientists, with your feet firmly on the ground, what you feel about that? Look, I think it's a really good idea. Um, I think we scientists are doing what we can to diagnose what the problem is and make clear what the risks are. And that's our role. Um, but but obviously, physical or natural scientists aren't the people who come up with the deeper uh, societal-wide solutions that we need. Uh, so I think your comment there is spot on. Uh, this is a whole-of-society issue, and we need to think very deeply about how our society operates, what our values are, uh, and how we could change those to not only deal with the climate issue, but actually build better, more equitable and more resilient societies. Uh, and that's a, a much deeper problem than just the physical science part of it. Ewan, do we have the chutzpah to do that as a, as a species? One of the key roles, I think, for scientists really is to, you know, look at potential scenarios in the future and model those and also, I guess, look at the pros and cons of different approaches. So there's always going to be a role, I think, for scientists in terms of trying to help us overcome these challenges. But I think I would also say that, you know, as, as an ecologist, we're really good at dealing with messy, complex systems because that is the natural world. And conservation scientists themselves as well, um, you know, we are working with interdisciplinary teams to try and find solutions to things like the climate crisis and the environmental crisis. So 
absolutely we can't just focus on science we can't just focus on religion we can't just focus on social and cultural dimensions we will need all of those working together to find solutions but i have absolute confidence that we can do that and i think it's important to recognize in australia we have some of the best environmental scientists and climate scientists in the world you know so so like sport we punch well and truly above our weight so we should be taking advantage of that. And so I, I do still have great hope that we can overcome this. What I'm hearing here is that this is a real opportunity to rethink, to challenge how we live on this planet, how, how we think about life on this planet. And let's hope we take that opportunity that is available to us. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Will Stefan from the Australian National University and Climate Counselor with the Climate Institute and you and Richie, Professor of Wildlife Ecology and, and Conservation at, at Deakin University. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Nick Kilfert, thanks for joining us. Natasha, thanks so much for having me. And if you head over to the next episode in the Science Fiction Podcast feed, you're going to get to meet the next three guests we have waiting in the wings to join Nick and I. Uh, and we're going to bring you that conversation on the airwaves on ABCRN next week. What are we going to be talking about, Nick? So we're going to be talking about carbon capture and storage. It's one of the technologies that the government uh, have written into their plan for net 50, net zero by 2050. And we're going to be unpacking it a bit. Yeah, because it's, it's got its sceptics and it's got its advocates and we're going to meet some of those. Carbon capture and storage, what is it? Will it? Does it? Has it worked? I'm Natasha Mitchell. Nick Kilvert has been my co-host this week. You can talk to us on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and at Nick Kilvert, Kilvert with a K, or email us from the Science Friction website. We'll catch you next episode. Bye for now. This is an intervention. Earth is talking to you today. And Earth has plenty to say. Be architects of something new, protectors of the day. Be shining final hopes, designers of chance and change. The hour is crimson, turning, turning. The hour is bruising, bluing, blue. We are human and we owe our home. Let's pay our home dues. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.